John chapter 19, and we'll look at verse 28. I have to admit that very rarely do I preach from one verse, (laughs) because I like the safety of context. I don't ever want to use a verse just to springboard into what I want to say, but I always want to find myself in the context of the story. But this morning, uh, our word of the day, the word of distress this morning, as your bulletin says, we've already, this is our fifth word, we have six and seven yet to go. And it comes from just one verse, and without getting into the next week's verse, I have to stop with just this one verse. So, just so we're all aware, uh, rarely are you going to ever hear me preach just from one verse, but here it is this morning. So, 19 uh, and 28, and we've already read, If just to remind ourselves of the context, we've already read about the crucifixion up to this point in another week, uh, in the week of the word of relationship, which was week number three. Uh, where he says, Woman, behold your son, and behold your mother, talking to John. So, so far what we've gone through is the word of forgiveness, which is where Jesus is on the cross, and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The word of salvation, which is to the thief beside him, you will be with me today in paradise. The word of relationship, which is recorded here in John 19, just above our passage. And then the word of abandonment, which is recorded uh, in, in two of the Gospels, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And also quoted there from Psalm 22. And so this morning's word is the word of distress. And here's what it says in 19 and 28. After this... In other words, after he was already put on the cross, already mocked by the soldiers, already had his garments divided, already had the soldiers uh, standing there watching him die with many other people, and after he gives his mother to John and John to his mother to make sure that she's taken care of, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said... To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And as we approach your word this morning and what it has to say to us, may we humble ourselves. May we give you the next few moments in order for you to both teach us, but also convict us challenge us, set us right by Your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Two simple words which has been the shortest words of the seven so far, which is just simply, I thirst. Now, of course, when when one was being crucified... And we remember that Jesus was already betrayed two days before this. That they wouldn't have probably given him much to drink, if anything. They were beating him like he was a dog. They weren't treating him humanely at all. 
So there's a great physical thirst here. But what else is being said here? I mean, this is one of the the seven words, this is one of the seven dying words of Jesus Christ. Surely there's more than just physical thirst here. Surely there's something this morning that transcends just being thirsty. And yet being thirsty is suffering, is torture. You see, He is in distress. This is the last few moments. And one of the things that preoccupies His human mind is His thirst. Is the fact that He's dehydrated. Is the fact that He can't breathe. He's parched. He's in great distress because He is fully human. And He took on our humanity. He is suffering. And again, we don't want to look at this. It's almost like we want to turn an eye away and not look at the scene of the cross. And what Lent focuses us on, what it makes us do, is to look at the cross of Christ. The bloody, shameful reproach of the cross. And what makes this even worse is that He is innocent. He's in our place. We should be the ones that are crying out, that are dying out because of our sin. And yet, God is in our place. He is in great suffering, as it says here, when He knew that all was finished. He says, I thirst. And some of His last breaths that come out of His mouth that we have recorded here, one of them is that He's thirsty. And Psalm 22, which is that beautiful, prophetic, um, messianic, if you will, psalm that we've looked at several times that Jesus has already quoted once from the cross. So He's already quoted it once. And he really quotes it again here concerning his own thirst. He says in verse 15 of chapter 20 of Psalm 22, he says, "My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death." Now, I've tried to count all the different references in Psalm 22 of the parallels they have in the Gospel accounts of Jesus' crucifixion. Just the crucifixion story. Not going outside of that. And I found over 13 in this one Psalm, 13 specific events that were prophesied in this Psalm that actually happened at the crucifixion of Christ. He's forsaken. He cries out. He's looked at as a worm and not a man. An animal and not a human person. He's despised. He's mocked. They wag their heads at Him. All these are direct parallels from the Gospels. And so when Jesus quotes that, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? 
I mean, if you would have been aware at all of that psalm and the situation that you were seeing at the crucifixion, it would have been striking. And one of those things here, as he says, to fulfill the Scripture, he says, I thirst. You know, you may not have ever thought of yourself as a murderer. I hope not. I hope you've never even had the guilt of knowing that you led to someone's death. That would be, I, I, wouldn't, I don't even know how, how that would feel. Um, I feel bad when I accidentally trip one of my children and they get hurt, you know? Much less if someone died because of my ignorance or because of my driving or whatever it may be. And yet the reality is I did cause someone's death. God's death of all people. I mean, it's one thing for... I mean, you know, everybody in this room has had a soldier die for them, for our freedom. For us to be sitting in this building, someone died and paid with blood. And that's a sobering thought. And it's, you know, it's something that we stand up for. It's something that we appreciate about our military and those young men and women who have given their lives. But this is not just a good man. This is not just a good woman that's dying on the cross. This is God Himself in our place. He is totally innocent and yet made to suffer because of Marshall Dagg. That's where it hits home. And yet we don't want to look at that. We don't like to think of ourselves as that. And yet it was my sin that put him in that position. And in his last dying words, he turns to Psalm 22. He turns to the Word of God. What does that mean for us when we're distressed? I mean... I know stress is something that all of us face, now at different levels. Distress is a little more intense than just simply stressed. Distress is at the end of the rope, not just that your kids are annoying moms, or that your work situation is fragile. Distress means your life is at risk. Where would we turn if our life was at risk? Where do we turn with the more simpler stresses of our life? Do we turn to God or do we turn to our own resources? People at varying levels of incomes always say, yeah, the rich have it harder because Jesus talks more harshly toward rich people in the Gospels. But let me tell you something. Even if you're on the lower end in America, you are rich. Walmart is just down the street here. Two of them now. Target's everywhere. 
We have at our disposal all kinds of power. You may not think of it as power, but it's power to do what you want to do, to supply your own needs. If we all had to be relying on a garden this year, that would change the circumstances of your prayer life. Let me tell you, you would be much more concerned with the meteorological events of our time than you are just about tornadoes. You would want rain. You would want a true spring. You would want no frost. We don't have to worry about that. We have Walmart. This is my professor used to always say, we don't need God because we have Walmart. It supplies all of our needs according to its abundance. We don't rely on God. We don't see our stress as a way to turn to God. But instead we turn to ourselves because it's what we're used to. We're rich. And he does warn against the rich. How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? I mean, I've often said, you know, in reading history, <laughs> just your little cell phone device, the fact that you can control the temperature in a building, the fact that you can drive a hundred miles today, and that's not even a big deal to you. Kings, the richest of kings and queens, have never been able to do that. The foods that we get to eat, the richness of them, the nutrients of them, we spend more money trying to slim down than we do stop you know, eating properly. It's amazing in our, in our country. How many people want to be thinner? Because we just have an abundance. There's nothing wrong with that other than a warning that ultimately we do not supply our needs Only God does. Don't get used to relying on self. Because hopefully, as you already know, self will let you down. And we always say others will let you down. Other people, don't trust other people. I say, and I think the Scripture says, don't trust yourself. Jesus doesn't turn to Himself here in these last moments, but instead, He turns to the Word of God. He is in distress because He's thirsty. Not just physically thirsty, but as Mother Teresa said many years ago, He is thirsty for you. It's why He's there. It's what has driven Him from the very beginning of His life where he had plenty, where he nursed at his mother's breasts, where he grew up to be a man, where he was called into the ministry at 30, where he was filled with the Holy Spirit. To this moment where he says, I thirst. It's more than just physical. In Psalm 69, which is interesting again that he quotes another psalm here. Look at Psalm 69, if you will. And verse 
21. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Which again is exactly what happens in His crucifixion. As soon as they, He says this, they get a jar full of sour wine, which is just common wine, wine that had been gone bad, basically. Not bad, but just lost its fruitiness. It wasn't a brand new bottle. It, wasn't the, it was just the common wine of the day. And they give it to Him. Maybe to keep Him alive for a few more minutes to see what would happen. But they're not in control of His death. He says in Psalm 69, by the way, He says, I've been made a reproach. And I think connecting that psalm to the New Testament, we can say God became sin for us. He became a reproach to God. God was reproached by God. I mean, what a mystery. We don't know what all is going on at the cross, which is why our only response is to worship. It's not to contemplate or just to simply think about it or try to understand it in logical terms. There's something deeper going on, and that is my sin has now been put on His shoulders. And He's suffering not just as a man, but as God now. You see, He thirsts for us. Yes, He's suffering in, in my place, in your place, but He's also for us. He's doing this for us. <clears throat> it's interesting that the way we talk about selfish people is to say they're full of themselves. Which again has the idea of being thirsty, has the kind of drink analogy here, symbolism. You're full of yourself. In other words, there's nothing else that you think you need in your life but yourself. Jesus here on the cross is not full of Himself. Instead, the One who tells us, come to Me because I have living water. Remember what He says to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4? It's interesting how... John knits these stories together. In John 4, he goes and he says, I must pass through Samaria. He goes through Samaria, meets the Samaritan woman, and he says, draw me out some water. And she, she says, well, I don't, you, know, you don't even have anything to draw out any water. And he says, well, you should be asking me for living water. That you never will thirst again. And she says, give me that living water. And what he's talking about, who he's talking about, of this spring of water, this spring of life, is the Holy Spirit. Which John tells us in John 7, when Jesus says, Come to Me all you who are thirsty. And John lets us know that he is actually talking about the Holy Spirit. Because you see, in our life, we too, just as Jesus became distressed. We reach points of being distressed. 
points where we know we can't do it on our own. We know that whatever we are filling our lives with, whether it's ourself or with pleasure or with power or prestige, that it just runs out of us empty. Never truly fills. We have to have more the next morning. There's only one thing in life that truly will satisfy the thirst of our parched souls, and that is the Spirit of God. We're a desert, and everything runs off of us like hardened ground unless we absorb in our soul His Spirit. Unless we place God in our hearts. Only He can break up the fallow, the hardened ground to make it soft and able to bear fruit. Just as Christopher prayed about our stony hearts, only He can remove the stoniness of our hearts and make it a heart of flesh. As Ezekiel prophesies, and has prophesied a few thousand years ago. You see, truly, you must come to a point where you too say, I thirst, just like Jesus did. If you've never come to that point, then you're still full of the world. You're still trying to live off the world. And maybe some of you are up to your neck you feel, in waters that you can't control. Maybe it is in your own life right now that you know you are at the point that you just can't take anymore of this situation or of being like this. You know that it's embarrassing. It's a reproach to your family. It endangers your family or your marriage or the people around you. See, the dirty little secret about sin that Satan never wants to get out is that sin does not just affect you. It would be great if it did only affect you. Sadly, it affects everyone else around you. You think just for a minute about the people you love the most around you. It is going to affect them First, it's a sad reality in our world. But it's why Jesus Christ takes that sin, takes that brokenness into His own body and destroys it. Destroys the works of the devil. I mean, just like last night, the analogy that the early church fathers used of fishing. He hooks Satan in. Hook, line, and sinker. And reels him in just to trick him. He thinks he's killed him. He thinks he's victorious. But in the end, there's a deeper understanding. There's a deeper reality to life. And that is, love destroys sin. But love is not selfishness. It's not being full of yourself It's being poured out for others. We see here on the cross Jesus' life 
literally being poured out. He only has a few more minutes left. His thirst for you drove him to this point. That's how much he cares for you. He couldn't get enough. And he suffered all the way, as the Hebrew writer says, all the way to the point of death for you. And what he offers and what he secured for us and what he became the victor of is living water. You see, another early analogy, another early theory of the atonement says that Jesus came to redo everything that we did wrong. It's kind of a cool word, recapitulation. He came to recap, redo every point that we did wrong. So whereas in the garden, Adam and Eve failed God. In the perfect garden, they failed God. In the dangerous wilderness, Jesus obeyed God. And at every point in His ministry, it's a redoing, an unwinding of what we wound ourselves into. And what He has secured for us in redoing what we could not do or would not do, He secured for us living water. Springs of water that well up in us that no matter what life situation we find ourselves in, we can be satisfied You know, marketing works off of being unsatisfied. It creates for you a need that you need something. So that when I see a certain kind of gun, say an MK-14 SBR, short barrel rifle, I think to myself, man, wow, I don't know anybody that has that gun. That would make me unique to have that gun, especially if it was suppressed. And I say to myself, man, I I really, Jessica, I kind of need that. And she says, no, you don't. (laughs) Or we see a car, or clothes, or a house. But as you know, the aphorism goes, the grass is always greener on the other side. And you've already found it to be true in your life, and yet we still keep hopping fences. We still keep trespassing into areas that we know bring us in debt or bring us into life situations that are meaningless and empty. Friends, there's only one thing in life that truly satisfies the soul no matter if you're rich or poor, sick or healthy. As the marital vows say... There's only one thing, and that is the Spirit of God. It's what we were made to truly run off of. It's not just high-octane fuel for our life. It is the only fuel for life. He is living water. If you are thirsting for the world, and you know you're in a, a sin maybe that you just can't get enough of. And you will never get enough of. Come to Him. All you who are thirst. What do you really thirst for in life? 
Every one of us are pursuing things. We're thirsty for something. Maybe it's for a good look or for a good house or for a good name or for prestige or for power. Or maybe we live for pleasure. Or maybe we live so that others can think great of us. Or that we're smart. Or whatever it may be. What do you thirst for in life? The first thing and the foremost thing that drives us as Christians is the Spirit of God. He is the living water that springs up within us. Every Christian is baptized into what? Water. Do you think that's insignificant here? Coincidental? No, John is brilliant in what he's doing here with this story. He's connecting it to what he's already said about water and what the rest of the Bible says about water. And that is there's nothing special about it other than it's a symbol of new life. God is offering to us new life. A life not our own. You've already had life your way for however many years you're alive. What about God's way? How many years are you going to give to God? See, baptism is a symbol of what we're talking about this morning. And what He's wanting from us is baptism in the Spirit. Be full, not of yourself this morning, but of the Holy Spirit. So what Paul commands us, be filled with the Spirit. Again, pouring. What happened at the day of Pentecost? The Holy Spirit was poured out on all people. Just as Baz read from Jeremiah 31 as it was prophesied. What do you thirst for in life? What's most important? Is it your kids? Is it someone else? Is it a job? Is it pleasure? Is it fun? We all thirst for something. Do you know that He's been poured out for you? Do you know that His grace, even this morning, is available for you to be victorious? To be satisfied? As St. Augustine said so many years ago, as the Roman Empire was coming to an end, He said, our hearts are restless until they rest in Thee. It's one of the more truer statements I've ever heard in my life and it's something I have to remind myself of weekly. I'm not my own. I'm God's. My children are not my own. They're gifts. My wife is not my own. She is a gift. You are not mine. You're gifts. Your job is a gift. And the only way to be a good steward is to have the Holy Spirit permeating, filling, satisfying our life. Amen.